0: Stephanie, as well as all of ours that have sang today and led the congregation in singing as well. If you have your Bible with you, I'll invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9 as we look at what I believe to be one of the most well-known of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Uh, as we look in Isaiah chapter 9, we are going to see Uh, A couple of specific things, three things that I want us to see from this text today. Uh, I want us to see for the people that heard this message originally, for the original hearers, the people of Judah, the people of Israel that heard this text or heard this message from Isaiah originally, I want you to know where they were, uh, what they were dealing with, what life looked like for them. I want you to see... Uh, their current situation and we're going to see them see where they are see what they're like and as we see it's going to be very bleak it's going to be uh, a very bad a very difficult situation so the second thing that I want to see in this text is the promise of hope and joy that was given to these people living in a very desperate time now some of you may be able to identify with this some of you may be here today and even though it's the week of Christmas And even though we would call this Christmas Sunday and as much excitement as there is, there are some of you they are dealing with very difficult circumstances for one reason or the other. So I want you to see also the hope that's promised. And then the last thing is we're going to see how that hope's going to come, uh, how that hope will be given. So look with me at the text this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. We'll begin with verse 1. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now I want to stop there for a minute. We're going to uh, work our way through this text. But here in verse 1, we really see that first point. We see the, the current situation for the people that were hearing this. When God gave Isaiah this prophecy... And God told Isaiah to take this to the people. Uh, The people that are hearing this are in the first part of verse 1 where it says, uh, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And the former time he had brought into contempt these different areas. Well, that's where they still are when they first hear this. They are dealing with the gloom. They are dealing with anguish. They are in the midst of the contempt and the punishment That's been brought to them. Now, I know for us, sometimes this is helpful and sometimes it's not, but in our Bibles, there are these chapters and verses. And so for us, sometimes that's helpful because I can say, hey, turn to Isaiah 9 1, and you all know where to turn. But sometimes it's not useful because. We look at Isaiah chapter 9 and we think it's a brand new section, completely separate from what happened in chapter 8 and completely separate from what happened in chapter 7. Like we can pick up here and it doesn't matter what's going on before this. That's not how it works. Remind you that as Isaiah was given this prophecy and shared it, he didn't stop and say, now chapter 9, verse 1. This was all together and it's important that we know that, especially this morning because... In chapter 7, if you and we're not going to go back and read, all, but if you read through chapter 7, and I recommend that this week, especially as you think about this prophecy. In chapter 7, God gave the people of Judah, especially the king, King Ahaz, he gave him a warning. I'll spare the details this morning for time's sake, but there was a specific thing that King Ahaz was thinking about doing that God told him, do not do. And you know what? He did it anyway. So in chapter 7, God warns him, don't do this, and he does it anyway. And then in chapter 8, God tells not only the king, but the people that this contempt, that this punishment is coming, that they have had terrible attitudes, that because of their rebellion, because of their lack of faith in him, because of their unwillingness to follow God, that they are going to be punished. And he tells them how he's going to do that. He says that he's going to send Assyria, the nation next door, the very strong nation next door. He's going to send Assyria there to take over the people of Israel and Judah. And that's what we see here in verse 1. That's what they're dealing with, and that's why it specifically names a couple of places. It says, in the former time, he, speaking of God, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, And then it later mentions Galilee, which is part of this area as well. And here's why those places are named. Because the very places of Israel that bordered Assyria were Zebulun and Naphtali. The area near the Jordan, and so why does it say they were brought in? If everybody was punished, why is this place? Why are these places singing? Well, they're the first ones, right? When Assyria comes across the border, the first places that are taken over are Zebulun and Naphtali, and so these people—it's kind of the signal of what's coming for everybody else. Everybody else sees Assyria come in and take them over and make them prisoners and make them slaves, and make them do what they want to, and everybody else sees this coming. They know that it's going to happen to them as well, and they know that there's nothing that they can do about it. So this area, when it says that they were in anguish, and they were uh, things were gloomy for them, it really means that it's not that they'd had a bad day, their week didn't go like they thought, they didn't get the Christmas present that they wanted. No, it's saying another nation has come and has made them slaves. Verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8 can kind of give us a little bit of the picture. Speaking of Assyria, it says, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry after they came in. And when they are hungry, the people of Israel, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So when Assyria came in, that's what life was like. Felt depressing. Everything was dark. Everything was ruined. Everything that they had owned had been taken. Every freedom they had had been removed. And they were now slaves to somebody else. Point one this morning, and these are in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. The consequences of Israel's decisions were punishment distress and darkness, right? Israel and Judah, they made this decision. They made the decision not to follow God. They made the decision not to be faithful, not to do what he said. And because of that, Assyria has come in and now the people are walking through the land. They're distressed and they're hungry. They're enraged. They're mad. They're yelling at God. They're yelling at their king. Everything appears terrible. Now some of you are thinking, this isn't exactly what I thought I was going to hear at the Christmas service whenever I went to church. I want you to understand, we can't understand the glory of the coming Messiah if we don't understand where the people were before the Messiah came. And this is what life was like without the Messiah. So that's what it's like, chapter 7, chapter 8, that's what the people are dealing with. This is what life is like. And then we get here to chapter 9. And this first verse of chapter 9 is telling us, this is the prophecy of what's going to come. It says, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Continue in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So here's the great prophecy, right? The first thing we saw is where the people were. People were in a bad spot. Things were not going well. But then here we see the prediction of what's to come. We see the promise of hope Enjoy. That's what this is telling them. This is telling them, this is what you have to look forward to. I know where you are right now. I know what you're dealing with right now. Israel, Judah, God's people. I know what looks like now. But the promise is that light is coming into the darkness. Their life seems dark. It seems terrible. But it says that hope is. Is coming. Your despair and your anguish and your gloom is going to be removed and the dark is going to have light shone into it like the sun rising on a brand new day. That's the promise that we see here. For a nation that had been cut down, for the, the people that had, many of them had been killed. The rest had been made to be slaves. Assyria had come in and made these Israeli provinces into Assyrian provinces. They said, this is our land now. You are our people now. You will serve us now. That's what life was like. And so for people that have dealt with that, to hear that the nation is going to be multiplied, that for those of us that have been being killed and oppressed, that we're going to be raised up and there are going to be more, and that the joy is going to be increased, and not just a little bit, not things are going to get a little bit better. I don't know if any of you have ever been farmers by trade, uh, but my father-in-law uh, was a county agent for years and years, and he has some friends that live up near Kosciuszko, and they still to this day are farmers. They're cotton farmers. It's what they do for a living, and so all year long, they work on their cotton crop. It's what they do. They grow and grow, and then one time, right, the whole year they work, for this one time and at one point when it's all ready and everything has gone well and the cotton has grown and they go through and they get to harvest all the cotton and they put it in bales and there's this relief right nothing destroyed the crop this year our entire income is based on this one week that we get to harvest and there's such joy When everything goes well and they get to harvest the cotton and they get to sell the cotton and they've made it another year and things are good. And that's what he says here. He says, There's going to be joy like at the harvest. When all the work that you put in is realized and the people rejoice or in excitement. He says, Joy like when they divide the spoil, like you've been to battle and you've won, and you're taking the people that you've defeated, you're taking what's left of their stuff and dividing it among all the men that were in the battle. That kind of joy. For people that had just been attacked and ruled, that had been oppressed, that had been slaves, that had everything taken away from them, to hear about the ma- the nation being multiplied and joy being increased, joy like at the harvest. they almost can't remember what joy was like at the harvest when Assyria was ruling them. Joy of defeating your enemies. Then in verse four, there's some specific specific languages used there that, that I believe the people would have recognized. When it says the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, those are those are words that would have brought to their mind when their ancestors were in Egypt. Almost always whenever you talked about being a slave to somebody else, the people of Israel, the Old Testament Jewish people, would think about whenever the people, their families, their ancestors were in Egypt. And so to think about whenever they were able to defeat the Pharaoh, when God came in and sent the plagues and defeated Pharaoh and sent Moses to deliver them, and they left, to think we are going to be in the same mindset that they were. When they defeated Egypt and were no longer slaves and got to leave, that's the promise here. God's saying, listen, I know what it's like right now, but this is what's coming. In verse 4, there's also, at the, when it says, you have broken, you've broken the uh, the rod of the oppressor, the staff of a shoulder, as on the day of Midian. Again, that's a specific reference for them, for those of you that know the story of Gideon, whenever Gideon led the people of Israel to defeat the Midianites. That's what it's bringing to mind here. And again, its I know they don't resonate with us because our great-great-great-grandparents weren't slaves in Egypt, and we don't know the story of Gideon uh, leading the people of Israel to defeat the Midianites that well. But just in some way... To help us this morning if if, I, if it were written like this. Uh, it'd be like somebody telling us that that we will celebrate like whenever the United States led the revolutionary war against Britain and finally won our independence. And they didn't rule us anymore and we were our own nation. And you think about the amount of pride that comes with that. When we start thinking about us as a nation, right, writing our own Declaration of Independence, and you're not ruling us anymore, and you think about the pride and the joy, and the, that's what they hear when these kind of words are used. If we talk about uh, that there will be excitement, like when we liberated the nations from Hitler and his armies. Some of you can remember that. A little bit better. If you think about the joy that came whenever that war was over and the enemy had been defeated, those are the sort of things that the people of Israel and you would have felt whenever they heard the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is a big promise for these people. This is a lot of hope. This is the promise of joy almost unfathomable. This is a big, big deal. And this is what God was promising to his people. Point two, God promised hope to the hurting with all divine certainty wasn't written like it might happen, it could happen, it possibly would. This is written as a promise. You can read the language that it's written with. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased. It goes on and on. This this prophecy isn't written like something that might happen. It's something that's so sure that it's written as if it already happened in the past. That's the language that we see here. The promise is this is coming. So people in a really terrible time are given a really big promise and the last thing that we have to see is when are they promised that the promise is going to be here? When are they promised that hope and joy and rejoicing will be here? Look with me in verse 6. For to us, We'll do this. When would the promise come? The the prophecy is that there's a child that's going to be born. And when this child is born, the promise will be revealed. You can start to see why the people of the Old Testament, why they looked so much forward to the coming of the Messiah. You see why they longed for it so much. Because you see where they were and you see what life was like And then you see this promise. When the Messiah comes, when the Son of God is born, and it's given to us that this would be the Son of God in those names that are listed there, we'll talk about in just a moment. But when that happens, the nation's going to be multiplied. You're going to have joy like at the harvest. You're going to have joy like when you're dividing the spoil. You're going to rejoice like whenever you defeated Egypt. You're going to rejoice like when you defeated the Midianites. That's what life is going to be like when this Son of God is born. And so they could not wait for the Messiah to come. Those names tell us that this is not going to be just any child, that this would be the Son of God, that He would give counsel and have wisdom that was so wonderful that it left people in amazement. That He would be called Mighty God, the Omnipotent, All-Powerful God. This child would be God in flesh. I love that Everlasting Father. And the, the literal translation of that is the Father of Eternity. It literally means that He was the one that created and was in charge of eternity. Not just that He had lived forever, but that He was in charge of eternity that he would last forever and that he would be in charge of everything, that he would be called the Prince of Peace. And for people that are slaves to another nation that's just attacked them, peace is a pretty big promise. When this Messiah comes, all of these things will happen. And it says he will come. How do we know it will come? Because the last sentence of this that initial prophecy in verse 7 says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that means that the passionate commitment of God to His people, the passionate commitment of God who rules the heavenly armies will make sure that this promise comes. And so point three, Jesus' coming was the promise of hope to God's people. They called Him Messiah. We call Him Jesus. They spoke of the anointed one or the promised one. We just call him Jesus Christ because it's not some possibility. For them, they didn't know when he was coming, but we know when he came. We know what his name is, and his name is Jesus. And it means Yahweh. It means God saves. God made sure that this happened. But the last thing I want to do before we go, I know that some of you, we won't see you again before Christmas. I pray you have a wonderful Christmas and that you celebrate deeply this joy and this truth. But I want to make sure that, that you don't leave here today knowing more about Israel and their history and thinking less about Jesus. Because I want you to take what I want you to do this morning. I want you to take the same points that we've given for Israel and I want you to take those points and I want you to lay them over the timeline of your life. Because we said that the consequences of Israel's decisions, right, they decided to rebel. They decided not to trust God. They decided to do things their own way. And the the consequences of that decision was punishment and distress and darkness. And at one point, you can lay that on the timeline of your life. And I can lay that on the timeline of my life. At one point in time, I didn't live for God. I lived for me, what we call when we were lost. When we were sinners. And I I, I didn't care what God said. I cared what I thought. i was going to do things my way. And here's the problem with that. Some of you say, that sounds pretty good to me. Well, the problem with doing it that way is that the consequences of that decision is punishment and distress and darkness. It's a life full of anguish. Anxious and nervous all the time. Never knowing what tomorrow holds. Never knowing what's going to happen. Never, never feeling like you're in charge. Never feeling settled. That's what it looks like to live a life full of sin. You see, for them, the oppressor, as they think about the greatest oppressor in the history of their people, it was Egypt. But when we think about the great oppressor with this rod and the staff making us do things we don't want to do, it's not Egypt, it's not Germany, it's not Britain, it's sin. We have sinned, and when we sinned, sin ruled our lives. Before we were Christians, before we came to know Christ, sin ruled our life. In Romans six, Paul tells us that it, we were slaves to sin, and that without Christ, it would still be slaves to sin. It made us do what it wanted us to do. We were dwelling in darkness. At one point, that was all of. And if we don't remember that, if we don't remember what life was like before Christ, we're never going to celebrate Christ like we should. If you don't remember who you were without Him, you'll never be thankful enough for Him. So I want you to remember this morning, I want you to think about what your life would be like without Christ, without the promise of eternity, without forgiveness without being able to tell sin and temptation, no, and having to give in to it over and over, we were hurting, brothers and sisters. You may not remember, it may have been a long time ago, but you were hurting before Christ. Which, second point, God promised hope to the hurting with all divine certainty. He promised us hope like He promised the people of Israel and Judah hope. Hurting, for them, we think being attacked by the Assyrians, but hurting looks a lot of things, looks like a lot of different things, doesn't it? For some of you this morning, hurting is an addiction that you may hide well from us, but inside is tearing you up because you can't tell it no and you just can't let it go. Some of you, some of you this morning, hurting looks like this false life that isn't who you are. But it's this outward persona that you give to people at work and to friends and at church, but it's just a lie, and you feel like you, you have to keep living this lie because you've lived it for so long when you really just want to be you, but you can't. And so you continue over and over. I hear church people all the time. So I don't ever let anybody else see who I really am. And you're hurting because of Some of you are Hurting. Some people are hurting because they don't have families and they don't feel like they fit in with anyone. And they don't feel like anybody really loves them. And some people are hurting because they wake up every day not knowing what they're going to do. They don't know how they're going to get through that day. And some of you here this morning are hurting because you have been holding grudges and hate against other brothers and sisters for years and years. And that hate that you have had and those grudges that you have held on to has been eating you inside, but you don't feel like they deserve your forgiveness, so you just hold on to it, and it's destroying you. And some of you, some of you just don't know what true love feels like. And it hurts. And there's pain. And we all dealt with all of these sort of things before Christ. We were all hurting. It's not just Israel. It's not just Judah that said, I want the Messiah to come because I need hope and I need peace and I need help. Brothers and sisters, it's you and it's me. We should be saying, I needed Christ to come because without Christ, I'm nothing and I have no hope and I have no help and I need his sort of peace. Which makes the last point such a beautiful thing because Jesus' coming was the promise of hope. God's people all of those things that I just said not feeling like you fit in not knowing what true love feels like being addicted to things tearing people apart hurting your family all of those things can be taken away when you come to Christ Jesus Christ came that's Christmas he left heaven and came to earth God came here and then he lived a perfect life and then he died a perfect death he overcame sin and he overcame death and he makes it available to us That now we can conquer sin. And we can tell sin no. And all of the sins we've done in the past, all the guilt of them can be taken away. And the punishment that we deserve to go to hell forever and ever, it can be taken away. Not because we did anything right, but because He did everything right. And brothers and sisters, that's why Christmas is such a big deal. We couldn't overcome sin. We literally could not do it. We needed God to come do it for us. And you know what? He did. He did. And He defeated it. And He won. And He took the darkness. And He took the anguish. And He took the the anxiety. And He took the gloom. And He took the hurt. And He took all those things and He defeated them. He overcame all of them. And He offers to us that we could be His. And that we could have the defeat of sin. And that we could have the freedom from punishment and guilt because he paid the ultimate price. He died and he paid the price for our sins so that if we would come to him in faith, he would be able to give us all of these beautiful things. Brothers and sisters, Christmas is a big, big deal because Jesus is a big, big deal. Israel was hurting. Judah was hurting because they had made some bad decisions. Some of us are here this morning and we're hurting because we've made bad decisions. You're not just going to do enough good to make it go away, brothers and sisters. You need Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have had things made right between you and God because you have faith in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we have reason to be excited. We should be smiling. We should know why we celebrate Christmas. If nobody gives me a gift on Christmas, it'll be okay. Now, I don't have to take that literally. But it would be okay because brothers and sisters that's not what Christmas is about if I didn't eat a single dessert on Christmas it'd be okay that's not what Christmas is about Christmas is about hope it's about light coming into darkness and I lived in darkness before that light came that light's name is Jesus Christ if you don't know him I've got good news for you this morning He has made it available that you could know Him. He has already paid the price for your sins if you would come to Him, if you would come and call on Him in faith. Admit that you're a sinner. Tell Him, Lord, I need you. He would save you. He would make you His. You'd be part of a family. You would know true love. You'd be forgiven of all of your sins. Your punishment would be removed. You'd have abundant life now and the promise of eternal life later if you would come to Him, brothers and sisters. Christ has made that available. I want to ask you to stand this morning. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation, a hymn of response, and I pray that we respond by singing it joyfully for those of us that know Christ. But if you're here and you have questions, I want to know more about this. Come, let me answer those questions. I would love to answer your questions. You will not be a burden to me, brothers and sisters. It would be my joy to tell you how you can enter into a relationship with Christ. If you need to pray, you pray. If you need to repent, you repent. But you do what the Lord leads you to, as Brother Shane leads us in him.